0: Hello, so my name is Dr. Christine Ball. I'm an anaesthetist at the Alfred and senior lecturer at Monash University. With me today is Dr. Brendan Flanagan, also an anaesthetist at the Alfred. With a career-long interest in human factors, Brendan was also previously director of the Simulation Centre at Monash. We have recently rolled out emergency manuals at the Alfred in both the theatres and the recovery room. So firstly, Brendan, what exactly is an emergency manual?
1: Thanks, Chris. Uh, basically, an emergency manual is a series of checklists uh, designed to be used as a cognitive aid uh, to help a team remember critical steps during a crisis situation.
0: OK, so my next question was going to be, do you see the manual as a checklist, a memory aid, or a series of protocols?
1: Well, really, a combination of <laughs> each in some respects. So. It, and it's a bit nuanced that the terminology so it is a series of checklists it's designed to help individuals and teams manage situations as i said whether or not it's a series of protocols might become a point of conjecture depending on how hard and fast you know what is meant mm. by the term protocol so re, so really that's a series of guidelines i would say to principally to help avoid omission of critical steps
0: okay so why should we use them and more particularly, why now in 2018 are we suddenly introducing these manuals?
1: Uh, so I think like all sudden interventions, there's been a lot going on behind the scenes for quite some time. So so in some respects, the development of emergency manuals is a somewhat natural evolution of CRM training and anesthesia in particular, which has been in play for you know, 25 years now. Mm-hmm. And in fact, Dave Garber's group at Stanford who has developed the manual that we've adapted for use at the Alfred. Their book that they published in 1994 was probably the first definitive catalogue of critical incidents. Uh, the bulk of the book was actually uh, the beginnings, if you will, of, of the manual we've been working from in this day and age. Um, but part of the how it reflects an extension of CRM training also is that at this point in time now, there's sufficient collective evidence, largely simulation-based evidence, uh, that correct use of a uh, well-designed cognitive aid leads to a significant decrease in the number of omitted critical steps. Okay. So There's a few, few double negatives there, but <laughs> the correct use of a cognitive aid uh, decreases the number of omissions of critical steps in an emergency.
0: Okay. So how should it be used?
1: So there's a, there's a number of factors involved in successful implement, implementation, which we might perhaps get to a little later. Mm-hmm. But uh, a key way that the aids are thought to be best used is involves a new role in, in a team management of a situation. And that's apart from having a team leader, mm-hmm. but also having a dedicated role of what's known literally as the reader. So the idea is that then someone other than the team leader opens the manual at the appropriate page under direction of the team leader and then works in a to and fro fashion with the team leader to read aloud the critical steps as itemized in the manual for that particular situation. And there's once again clear evidence now that use of a team a reader successful completion of the task compared to somewhat less Hmm. uh, focused use of the manual.
0: So we've probably really covered this but what do you see as the real advantage of, of an emergency manual compared to not having one?
1: So human factors research in a number of industries but increasingly also in healthcare these days helps us understand challenges about how we conduct ourselves in critical situations. So the way the group at Stanford described it is that our memory seems to shrink when we're stressed. Mm-hmm. So that our ability to recall things in any a particularly uh, logical sequence is impaired. And our ability to use the knowledge that may be in our head to, to bring it to the front of our mind, as it were, is uh, difficult in an emergency situation when we're stressed. And also in a potentially chaotic team environment, Uh, the situation occurs where steps are missed or even if something is remembered, if the team leader remembers to do a a task it can be forgotten because of interruptions to the team leader by other Mm. members of the team. So it helps ensure as I've said a few times now I guess uh, that all the critical steps are attended to and probably certainly anecdotally it decreases the stress situation which is almost certainly always going to be helpful in terms of managing any type critical situation.
0: Bill Runciman always used to say um, there's no point climbing the tree if you're in the wrong forest. Uh-huh. Is there a risk, do you think, that you pick the wrong problem with the manual and develop tunnel vision, go down the wrong path?
1: Absolutely. Uh, one of our colleagues, Dan Raymer at Harvard, um, is actually doing a project at the moment looking at the, the dark side of manuals because, believe it or not, he's seen in simulation settings uh Team members arguing about which page to be looking at. <laughs> now, hopefully, those kinds of things don't actually occur in the real world, but who can say? Yeah. Um, so, I would say it's a definite possibility. So, hopefully, there would be two principal factors that would minimise the possibility of that. One, it gets down to the issue of the design of the manual, and so that, for instance, the manual we use, part of what's built into the design. Uh, uh, frequent opportunities to, in terms of prompts to consider differential diagnoses. Mm-hmm. And I think the other thing is is teamwork. Mm-hmm. If there's a flattened hierarchy in the team in terms of managing a situation, then hopefully people will be prepared to volunteer, hang on a minute, you know, could it be this, have you thought about that kind of thing. So I think issues around design that help prompt you in terms of potential different, uh, differentials on the one hand, and as I say, teamwork, assertive communication from other members of the team to help the team leader not go down the wrong rabbit hole.
0: What do you see as the limitations of the use of these manuals?
1: Uh, well, I think that, that in, in part the, the previous question mm. gets to one potential issue of the barking up the wrong tree or whatever the, the expression is. One issue is how context specific the manual is and how that can help in a particular environment. So. I'm sure you are aware that there are generic types of crisis manual books you can literally buy off the shelf, yep. which are, you know, there's a good example, the book by Borshoff is an anaesthetic crisis manual. It's a very good example. Uh, but, and that's great, I would say, from an individual perspective if you're the kind of practitioner that works in multiple different environments mm-hmm. in a given week. But from an institutional perspective, it's very clear that, you um, one of the advantages or one of the strengths of a manual is determined by how context-specific it is. So, for instance, if you open the hypotension page and you're at the Alfred Hospital, how much does the manual reflect exactly what you we would hope would be done here at the Alfred, including things like where any equipment that you might mm-hmm. be wanting to get. So, so clearly there's an issue around context-specificity. Um, clearly a manual can't have every situation in it. Yes. So, so, so there's an issue of... Of of you know sizing that or scale I suppose, and of course there's variability of presentation in, yeah. in clinical situations. All these things are potential constraints I suppose, um, and there are a series of implementation issues that are important for successful rollout. And uh, I guess conversely, if those things aren't attended to appropriately, then they will impact on the the actual uh, usefulness of the of the manual.
0: So, so, let's talk about those. What are the steps necessary to implement these sort of aids in a hospital?
1: Okay, so it's pretty clear now from the evidence around the globe that there are four vital elements. Uh, first and foremost is is creating a tool or modifying an existing tool, and I guess I've uh, hinted at the issue of the importance of context specificity at institutional level. Secondarily is is familiarising or well, everyone who might be involved in the use of such a manual. In the existence of the manual and how it is to be used. Thirdly and obviously of course is using the manual but by that I mean really using it and monitoring its use and being receptive to feedback and so being seen to uh, take the feedback on board and and really it becomes a continuous quality improvement process how the manual is modified over time Um, and really so one of the key things is that the tool should be considered as dynamic or the manual should be considered as dynamic tools. And part and parcel of all this, the fourth step, I suppose, is integration into the system. So it reflects a culture change. Uh, mm-hmm. I think all, each of those are worth teasing out in a bit more detail, if that's okay. Yeah, Of course. So, so, so we've talked about the issue around creation or not, and uh, and <coughs> so just to go back to Garber's book from 25 years ago, the, the catalogue then was all about the content. Yes. And, and they were very quick to point out that, the way the information was presented in that book was not at all helpful in the,
0: <laughs> Real the moment,
1: as it were. Mm-hmm. Um, but so that group and others have been working on issues around design over many years. And so now what we have now, it's the issues around the uh, the content are, are far more, or the design, I should say, are far more important in terms of facilitating use under stress. Okay. Um, so just some simple things. There's a there's a standardized format to the manual, the event names in large mm. text across the, at the top of the page, a lot of cross-referencing as I referred to earlier, um, different colored boxes, use of bold font, very streamlined language in relation to key, the key actions and things like doses and simple wording so that the, it's easy to read aloud and comprehend even in stressful situations. So, so all of those things are probably important. There's a whole other issue around hard copy and soft copy. Mm-hmm. Um, so the evidence interestingly suggests, as we have done in this first instance, hard copy is actually preferred by users. Um, to, something to be able to hold and actually flick through is felt to be more important. And there's a whole other issue about tr- chaining things down, don't get stolen versus able to be moved around the room. As you know, at the Alfred, we've deliberately not chained the things down so that the manuals can be picked up. and and moved around um, and also although I think it strays into the issue around creation and design is a really important thing is that the manuals are in an easy to find and consistent location in the work environment so once again as you're aware at the Alfred there are two copies of the manual in each theater one's very prominently displayed on the wall adjacent to the emergency buzzer mm-hmm. as a prompt if you feel inclined <laughs> to hit the buzzer, not necessarily needing to hit the buzzer to use the manual, but if you buzzer, hopefully you'll be reminded of the existence of the manual and that there is a copy also on the side of the anaesthetic trolley for instance. So, so there's a whole bunch of things that are probably important in terms of the design and the content that are thought to be important from an implementation point of view. Probably the biggest challenge in many respects, is the familiarisation process because, once again, the most successful uh, institutional rollouts have provided opportunities for everyone to feel comfortable to at least initiate use of the manual and that's a, that's a cultural mm-hmm. issue, of course. But there's educational issues around that so, so mm-hmm. that um, multiple methods are probably important and so, you know, part of what we've been doing at the Alfred is some in-servicing. We've uh, made some videos which are on the very close to being able to roll out for people to use to get a better sense of how to use the manual. Uh, certainly already I think we've done a pretty reasonable job of incorporating use of the manual into existing uh, educational sessions, whether that be for the trainees or nursing staff. Um, and, and the hopefully part of what's ahead here at the Alfred is building in situ simulation training for whole operating room teams mm. uh, to, to, to Help them get more familiar with the use of the, the manual. So, uh, part of our medium to long term strategy is hopefully that, on a rotational basis, we'll be starting the day in a given operating theatre appropriately staffed with all surgeons, anaesthetists, nurses, techs, and the first case of the day will be a simulation. Okay. Uh, um, but, uh, and that's a part of uh, you know something that we feel would help embed this as a cultural culture change. Um, I've, I've touched on the. Step three, which is the use, but I just reiterate that the point of it being an iterative process, of course, it's always going to to be new externally generated guidelines, whether they're college, you know, guidelines Mm -hmm. relating to anaphylaxis, or there's always going to be new ALS guidelines, so there's always going to be reasons why the manual is going to need to be refined over time and of course partly that will affect issues that have a particularly local flavor, so the way we are going to address that here looks like this, and so there will always be that need and will be dependent on feedback from users to help drive mm-hmm. that process as well. Uh, and just finally, again, step four, in terms of the integration, some really key measures are important as per any you know, quality improvement process, the importance of an interprofessional implementation team. which And you know you can be lucky sometimes. So the head of cardiac surgery at the Alfred Hospital is a pilot. Yes. So he was all over this when we approached him or, you know, when he first yeah. became aware yeah. of it, which is a huge help. We've been uh, a lot of, uh, you know, the nursing staff are very on board, the theatre techs are very on board. So that's been great. Uh, Local leadership support is, you know, crucial of course. Um, And buy-in from diverse clinical opinion leaders. So clearly we've had to, because we've worked off a manual that was developed in the US, there's a lot of, you know, minor changes, but, you know, across the board there's quite a lot involved. in. Uh, refining the manual to reflect how we would want things done here. And a great way to get buy in is be to, to to seek the advice of local clinical experts in terms of how such situations are managed here. Um, and, and then also just the issue of training mm. everyone involved, both in terms of its existence and the rationale and, and how it should be used.
0: Thank you. Okay. So, obviously, theatre and, well, obviously to me anyway, theatre and the recovery room lend themselves quite well to that sort of teamwork, where people reasonably familiar with each other. Do you think that this sort of manual will have more broader application throughout the hospital in the future?
1: I think the uh, the med team is mm-hmm. a probably a good example of where something like this could could come into play quite nicely for the same kind of reasons. It's always uh, potentially you know, stressful and time-critical situation. We know the impact of, of that on people's uh, teamwork skills mm-hmm. and, and their memory skills. Um, of course, you'd need probably a different set of checklists yeah. because the existing manual is clearly very much uh, revolves around in the operating theatre or in the perioperative environment type of thing. But, you know, you could still have a, a reader, and, in fact, in some respects, if the reader was an a explicit part of the net team, that would actually Probably be very helpful because presumably there'd be a smaller cohort of potential readers and mm. over time they would become more familiar with the contents and so I could see that working very well in a met team setting. Perhaps similarly in other environments where the actual environment is a bit more controlled by which I mean areas like the intensive care unit or the emergency department probably are a little more culturally inclined to consider use of such tools and, and and they are relatively controlled environments in terms of the work dynamics compared to your kind of average ward environment, mm. where it's a kind of a bit of an amorphous mass of people, and there would I think there would be genuine challenges in terms of education and implementation, et cetera. So I could certainly see broader applications uh, outside away from just the perioperative environment.
0: Okay. So I think what we need to do now is redo this interview in a year's time to see how it's all rolled out at sure. the sure, absolutely. <laughs> which would be a great thing but otherwise thank you thank you very much for today
1: thank you so very much chris